Hello, you guys, and welcome to the first interview of What's Up With Your Stuff, where I catch up with Rhonda Rosenheck. I met Rhonda in the summer of 2003 out at Brighton Bush Hot Springs, where she and her then husband were vacationing. And it was far away and out of the New York City element that they spent the rest of their lives in. Um, It was a hot springs retreat center uh, up in the Cascade Mountains where I did massage and I worked on her husband. And when I told him about my previous life in New York City and what I used to do out there, he quite literally pulled himself up off the table and said, oh, my wife is going to want to talk to you. Turns out they were living in an apartment above one of the most iconic sites in New York City, and that is the Tom's Diner, whose exterior uh, provides the shots for the diner where the Seinfeld gang would gather. It was also immortalized in the Suzanne Vega song, Tom's Diner. Um, It is uh, in the episode, I refer to it as something out of a David Hockney painting. I have since realized that that was one of those things that happens when you don't actually know your art history or art appreciation well enough to just go off the cuff. Clearly, I met Edward Hopper. It was very much like uh, it had that sort of boulevard of broken dreams type of exterior. I do know that piece uh, because, I mean, come on, whose college dorm room didn't neighbor somebody who had that freaking painting, uh, print, whatever it was on their wall. Uh, anyway, so yeah, it was such a classic exterior that I was just so excited when I skipped up to the front and I was fresh from the woods and, and back into the vibe of organizing for my New York city people. Um, as I mentioned in my intro, I would go back and forth from the woods to New York City um, periodically so that I could check in with my former and current clients, um, but just meet them seasonally where they were and be able to go through their belongings and say, okay, I know that you haven't worn this since the last time I was here because I folded that (laughs) and and I know how I fold and you haven't worn this. So it's time to think about getting rid of it. So, um, because that was my habit and my intention to continue going back and forth between doing massage in the mountains and organizing in the city and even occasionally doing massage in the city, which is its own other story for another date. Um, when I was back in the city after having done massage out at Brighton Bush, when I was organizing in Manhattan, I had a completely different approach to it after I had been, um, on my wellness journey out in a different type of, uh, not, not the concrete jungle. That's for sure. Out in a ancient old growth forest. So uh, that having been the spectrum on which I uh, developed my approach in dealing with bodies and uh, interiors, um, organizing Jonathan's spot 
and Rhonda's spot proved to be a task greater than anything I could manage. Um, I soon realized that I was in for more than I had signed on for. But even at the outset, even when I first walked in, I still thought I could make a difference. And that was before I really understood what I was dealing with. And it had a lot to do with me then becoming a lot more clear with my clients and with myself about what kind of clients I was willing to attract and take on and how to show up for folks when they're um, what that it's important for me to have a reference base for actual trauma-informed therapists at my disposal when it when I'm dealing with folks who have something that is beyond a mess it's beyond too much stuff it's an actual disorder that permeates every aspect of their lives not the least of whom was their spouse and uh, Rhonda's journey throughout her marriage to this individual and her years beyond that her diagnoses with uh, cancer and with fibromyalgia and the way that she manages to weave all of these events into the life of her dreams, really. She'll be one of the first to tell you. And a lot of that has to do with scaling back, you know, maybe what some of those um, dreams might have been at some time or another. But when you really can be content with less and you realize how much more you can create if you are unfettered and unencumbered by all this stuff and that then gives you the time and the space to tune in to your body and its needs and show up for yourself in a way that gives you the opportunity to create the life that you really want for yourself and how every single one of those chapters feeds into the story that we're going to be telling ourselves and the, the folks that come behind us one day. So that means that our conversation, especially it being the first time we had connected in 20 years in really and had this type of a conversation, uh, it's a, it was a pretty long conversation. It was a three hour conversation. So if you are uh, as engaged with the subject matter as I am, that three hours will fly by and you won't even realize it. But I did do you the favor of breaking it into bite-sized chunks. So each chapter is about an hour and we're going to go into the time that we spent together and what that looked like. The second chapter will be her extrication and diagnoses, not necessarily in that order. And the third is sort of the culmination of all of that stuff and how, uh, how that translates in her body and with her stuff. And there are some, because she's a wonderful poetess, uh, there are some fantastic gems inside these episodes so um and there will be information on how and where to find Rhonda in the show notes 
And I really hope you enjoy uh, eavesdropping on our conversation. And if you have any questions, feel free to drop them in any of the uh, messaging options that you're given there. I know that Spotify has been really good about making sure that folks can connect. So I want to hear from you. What does this bring up for you? What does Rhonda's journey, what about it resonates with you? And what do you want to hear more of? I've got all kinds of uh, fascinating folks coming and I can't wait to share uh, all of the the pieces of this journey with you. So let's jump into the first part of the first part and uh, grab yourself a glass of water or a cup of tea, settle back, maybe start folding and uh, let's listen to what Rhonda has to say. It's just so exciting. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my you gave God. Give me the choice to say got it or leave the meeting. <laughs> No, we get to, yeah, no, you're here. You got it here. I'm going to, I'll come find you again. I'm, uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so good to see your face. Like I haven't taken, I'm kind of like not, uh, technically, technologically inclined at all. And even though this has been an option for so many people throughout the pandemic, I haven't spent enough time connecting with the people that I really would love to just sit and like, Oh my God, I don't even want to turn away from you. You know, it's funny. I used to go ahead, pour your coffee. I used to, um, I, there was a a couple of girlfriends with whom I would do this regularly, not during pandemic. (laughs) It's like, we stopped doing it. My only, you know, uh, it's like the little, uh, Brady bunch heads that I'm, that I've used during pandemic and that it's not satisfying. I mean, it, it, it's quite efficient, but it's not satisfying. So no, it's not. I mean, it's uh, I have managed to avoid uh, using it too much for any type of business. Uh Here we go. Going upstairs to my, through my messy house to my (laughs) bed where I'm going to go just catch up. I can't even Rhonda. I'm like, I don't even know where to start. You're a, I'm fascinated with absolutely everything that you've been working on since I last got to see you in person, but I don't even know where the story begins, right? Well, I think our story begins the day our story ended. (laughs) Seriously, like I was trying to tell my husband that I don't know just given the fact that, let me settle down for just a second. Um, the fact that, that, that the situation was what it was, I don't know how many other people in your world actually understood what your experience was. I used to, I mean, uh, I would say that you understood it there was a high school friend of Jonathan's who understood it, uh, who, whom I knew, you know, so she understood it, she saw it and she understood the depth of it. Um, I think my parents understood what a nightmare it was, but I don't think they understood it. Um, yeah, and I, I was told that I didn't understand it. You know, I had a, um, 
I had a, uh, a parent in, my, in the school that I was founding at the time that, that uh, after, after the apartment, when Jonathan had moved out to New Jersey with me, which was miraculous in its way. Um, he left. He left the apartment. He, he, it was, oh, we can talk about that another time. But, but, um, but I, I, I did have a, um, a parent in my school who was uh, the head of the anxiety disorders clinic at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And, um, and he couldn't work with Jonathan at all because they knew each other from camp days, you know, this is a small New York Jewish community, but, but he could advise me. And uh, even to the last meeting he and I had, he said to me, you still don't understand how your husband's mind works. You, you the things you perceive and the way you explain what you're experiencing make sense from you, but they're wrong as an understanding of him. So when you say, how can he not be disgusted by me when he refuses to touch my hands? And he says, I'm not disgusted by you just because I refuse to touch your hand. And you say, how can that be? He's, he's right from his own brain, right? You know, so, so I, I think that, um, I think what would be fun about that, I mean, obviously, since you asked to talk about this stuff, I've been thinking about it nonstop. Um, yeah. Uh, and that, that to me is like such an indicator that it's just such a juicy, oh, right so much, topic, so much. right? Like it's just yeah. so layered from both of your experiences leading up to that point. And then what that time was for both of you. And then all the work that you've done. Yeah. I would say what would make me happiest with this is to you know, sort of touch on the circumstances between us, right? You know, so touch on my marriage and what that was about and what that illness was a little bit, but not to stay there um, because right. I think it's less interesting. And most people listening to this um, are not going to be pathological hoarders on the DM blah, blah, blah scale, which, you know, I, I think most most people accumulate for different reasons. And right. one of one of the things that allowed me to marry Jonathan uh, without recognizing the mental illness of his situation is that I come from a family of neurotic hoarders or maladaptive hoarders of things, you know, which, which said to me, this is no big deal, right? Like, you know, cause I knew in my family that you will just find this very funny, but the, the things growing up that I couldn't stand about my parents and my brother is that they always ran late, always ran late and did not understand that it was stealing somebody else's time if you were making a, a, an appointment with somebody, uh, especially my father who would never steal a penny from anybody and yet absolutely could not allow himself to see running 20 minutes late for an appointment with somebody who's waiting for him on a corner as stealing from them. Um, right. And they were, chaotic and messy and adrenaline junkies. My mother and my brother could not accomplish a thing until it was on them. They couldn't finish a single thing. They're still both like this. They cannot finish a thing until it is on them to the extent that their adrenaline is up and then they, they, they fire on all and they're brilliant, you know, and they get it all done. 
me, my adrenaline goes up like that and I'm nauseous. You know, I, right, right, <laughs> I can't right. function that way. And I never did. My mother was like, you're neat, you're organized, you're thin and you're on time. Where did we go wrong? You know, <laughs> I was such a changeling. A Except for the fact that I look exactly like my father. You would right. think I didn't belong in that family. But I love my family. They're magnificent yeah. people. So right. if those are the worst things a person can be, that's not so bad, right? Like I lived my whole life with those frustrations and they, they felt big, but I knew what, as I got older, that this is nothing. I mean, people could really suck. They could be mean. They could be not working for your best interest. They could be uncaring. They could be all sorts of things that my family wasn't. So Some people just aren't bothered by dirty socks on the floor or don't feel the need to like take the extra moment to screw the lid all the way down. So, right. so big deal. Right. Right. And even like to the, you know, when my folks moved to Florida and I would go down every year before Passover to help prepare before everybody arrived the day of, and then there were these two enormous meals and then everybody else would go home. So I would always go at least even when I was working a day or two early. And we, we set up boundaries, my mom and I, because not only isn't she bothered by those things, but she does, she considers it a waste of time to gradually neaten things. Right. It's just going to get like, she might not agree with my perspective and she's certainly going to watch this and she's going to tell me I'm wrong. But so this is completely from my perspective, mom. Right, sure, and, sure. you know, but, but, um, but she wants to do the cleanup before company comes. That's what we called it. You know, this was cleaning up for company and it happened in a whirl and it mm -hmm. took very little time and it was done to her um, satisfaction when it was done and she felt comfortable having people into her home in that moment. And that was, that was an, you know, she was always pressed for time. She always worked full time, you know, from the time I was four years old on, you know, and so this was the way to compress cleanup into a small period of time. Sure. Even Why it's like raking leaves or shoveling snow. do it all the time if you could just do it the once, right? You know, right. Old <laughs> yeah, I, that makes me sick. I cannot yeah. do it. It's not me. So we made a rule even for a sort of an agreement when I would come early for Passover, I would not participate in that in her apartment. I would take the time when she's doing that to buy the wine, to, to finish the last items of shopping at the butcher store, to, right. to do the, the out there things during that right. brief period of time while she was yeah. running around like a maniac. Right. And then we were both happy because oh. that, that's what makes her happy. And it, it isn't what makes me happy. So, well, and those um, things also like you're making yourself incredibly useful because those are the things that when you're racing around trying to get the house on, it's like, oh my God, I didn't get fall the, I down. Get right. They, you can't yeah, get it. Like, you can't do both go. of those. Things. So, yeah. so there were these two sides of it when I went to marry Jonathan. Um, uh, the Friday night before our wedding, we had 18 people, 19 people at dinner in my little apartment remember if you saw the apartment I lived in when no I already lived in his apartment right so 
So a long, I had this weird, small, but very open, long apartment and I could fit long tables in and have up to 20 people eating there. Nobody right, could really, sure. like only people on this side of the table could use the bathroom, but, but you know, it could, it could fit. And, and I did, we did that a number of times. I've done a number. So I had that the Friday night before our wedding weekend and, you know, my, everybody was in, right? So my um, Jonathan was 45 minutes later than the starting time for dinner. And then proceeded to do every single ritual thing he does on Friday nights, including this additional several paragraphs that he had just taken on to do that week. So he was 45 minutes late, dinner waited for him for 45 minutes, and then another 25 minutes of ritual that went above and beyond the rituals that he would have used a week earlier, right? My mother, not expressing this to me until later, was like, holy shit, should I stop the wedding? Do I have any right to stop the wedding? This is gonna drive her crazy. She can't live with this. She couldn't live with us. And we're not like this. You know, we're a fraction of this. So on one side, it was that, it was like, how could you take the feature that that you hated from us and marry it? My right. brother jokingly said it when my brother married, uh, met, came into New York to meet Jonathan before we married. He went home and he said to me, I like this guy. He makes me look good. He's neat. And he's like, yeah. he's, you know, he's, you know, he makes me look neat and, and on time. Right? right. You know, like, like, like he is such an exaggeration of what, what you grew up with and screamed at me about. Why do you scream right. at me about it all the time? If you now you're marrying it. Like the only way out is through. (laughs) Like you're like, okay, let's deal with it. You know, but so there was the part that said, I can handle these traits. I've lived my whole life with these traits. I hate them. I'm not marrying him because of them. Right. But I've lived my whole life with them. And maybe part of my brain said, there's a correlation, you know, like a genetic correlation between these traits and the incredible intelligence and humor and kindness that my yeah. and creative energies that my family had so and, and jonathan at his best was at his best he displayed well. those right at right. his best right. that's what you felt you felt that love and um so you know so i say that you know rather than focusing on him and his illness you know there's me and and why i why the interesting part of why i why I imagined that his illness would not be so disruptive of my well-being that I chose to marry him. And that's what I want to tap into. And I will say also, before we segue into that, the reason that this even became a topic of interest to me, one moment, I'm going to close this window so that I can get a little tighter sound because, but you are the reason, you guys are the reason. Well, and I, and I think that we should actually look at that last day, you and I, and the things that we remember from, from that parting. I think that that, that was a very, um, you still there? Yes, I am. I'm okay. sorry. I'll- that was, that's okay. I'm doing my, my minimal, uh, AV, yes. uh, my AV corrections. 
such a work in progress. Like I said, there's a reason that you're the person I want to start with because it is kind of where the, where this started in my brain, because I was at a point out at Brighton Bush where I, when I met you guys for the very first time, you both really just sort of like embodied that thing that I just missed so desperately about the East coast. Like you just brought in this like burst of East coast energy. And I was like, yeah, that's really where my heart is. And the truth is it doesn't matter where I go. Anytime I'm in New York city, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is it. I gotta, this is my, this is where I belong. And my daughter feels the same way. So it's, no, it's in the blood. That's cool. Yes. But, um, when I got, when we finally, and getting to your place was its own thing, getting to the space where Jonathan felt comfortable enough to allow me into the space. And the whole time, all I can think is, oh, just show me a picture of what you want it to look like. And I'll make that happen. Like, it's just about brute force. It's just can about- Can I say something to you right there? A thing I would say to everybody was if you've got the word just in your sentence, you don't understand what's happening. That's it. Right. Couldn't you just, I could just, the minute the word just is there, you have no clue how complex this is. Right. That's and, exactly and, right. And, and we didn't, you didn't, and I didn't. You No, and you that's like uh, and, yeah. It's like saying, uh, what is it? Um, at least at least and just right like at least it just dot 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 you're like right 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 it's like no I'm sorry right you know it was just right it was seriously and and you thought I was was so naive of yeah I was so naive Rhonda and I had worked with a couple of um people and this was I feel like we should also say it was 20 years ago this was before there were television shows dedicated to this topic. Like this was before it was a recognized disorder. And so people just had just too much. Barely. Actually, it was, do you know that, uh, what is it called? The DSM, the, the mental health uh, mm-hmm. manual, right? Um, during the time that I was with Jonathan, I don't, I don't know which year it came out, but DSM-5 came out while Jonathan and I were married after our experience together. And my mother, who is a social worker, so she always has the next new DSM there. Um, And we had looked up hoarding and hoarding was an anxiety disorder. And um, in DSM-5, they moved it to a psychotic disorder from an anxiety disorder. I feel like that was after you and I were connected via email. I just remember being like, "Uh, Rhonda, like like sending you, like this is... It's, it was so, and, but I think that that where I started out that like, oh, I'll just, just show me what you want. And I remember the first time I walked through and got all the way back and saw the, the plants on the windowsill on the, the shelves across the windows. I was just like, just start there. Let's just get rid of the plants. Yeah, and it was like, problem, right? and, and then like with the, oh, it's, there's recycling here, you know, like let's deal with all the things. And again, I was so naive because I had dealt with people who had hoarding disorders that were all rooted in, in traumas, but I hadn't acknowledged them as such. I didn't know it wasn't in the DSM. It wasn't, it was just like, oh, I can help you. Mm-hmm. And I, and I would listen to the, a lot of folks that I would do work with that wanted to be present for a lot of it. 
and Jonathan was like, I remember the first time I came, he hadn't slept the night before and he was fully just like so full of anxiety and it was a different side of him than I had seen because it was and and so I went to the bathroom and I started in the bathroom because you know it's a New York City bathroom it's like what six square feet <laughs> like so and it's mostly tile start there just start in the bathroom and, and I said, why don't you just leave and let me handle this and I'll separate based on whatever. And, uh, I remember looking at his medicine cabinet and seeing everything that was on the shelves was, uh, antibacterial and then stuff to treat skin conditions and intestinal issues. And I remember thinking like, well, your skin is your biggest organ of elimination and everything in his medicine cabinet says that he's having intestinal, like he's not, nothing's passing through this person. Like he can't eliminate anything. And it just like sat there, like as I'm in the room where the elimination happens in the room where it happens, like, Hmm, what's going on? And, and it just like, as I sat there and scrubbed the bathroom and tried to get it as best I could. And I remember that like your response to that <laughs> coming home to the bathroom, you, I left, you came home, you told me, like you called me the next day and you said that you just curled up on the floor of the bathroom and sobbed. Cause you were just so grateful to have some one space. One little space, one space. You know, it was, uh, there was there was an exchange he and I had in the bath about the bathroom once. Um, I called him from work. I couldn't find the little plastic baggie that I had some tampons in that I had kept on top of a pile of newspapers over there from the toilet, which was the only place I could kind of reach that wasn't the bathtub, right? And I couldn't find them one day and I needed them and I couldn't find them. And I did whatever I had to do and sorted something out. I never found that. And I called them from work and I said, this is my little Ziploc baggie of, of tampons in the bathroom. And there was silence. And he said, I threw them out. <laughs> I said, you threw them out? You threw? There's, there's a room there filled with mountains of things that have nothing to do with a bathroom. And you threw out my five tampons that are in a baggie near the toilet? Right. Why? He had a very good reason. He thought that they had somehow come up from the pile that they were on and that they must have belonged to his last girlfriend who was a decade earlier and that it would upset me to see them. So now this is the same girlfriend who left post-it notes that were still on the back of the front door that said, be back in five minutes. So the post-it note was okay. The girlfriend who left a decade ago is gonna be back in five minutes, but her tampons can't be there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you that I, I bring, you know, we, we bring our PTSD into our next relationships, right? You know, mm -hmm. when 
um, in, so I live in Max's house and we'll talk, talk about that another time, but you know, this is definitely Max's house and I'm as comfortable as a person can be in another person's house, but it's his house. And we know, cause he could veto where something goes or he could take my something and move it from here to there. Whereas like, that's not even anything I would even imagine being able to do properly. Right. Right. You know, and I say, so what, what, one of the things that happens is a similar thing, which is that he looks around and he sees things where they belong and clutter. And mm-hmm. guess what he defines as clutter? Anything that belongs to me, which is clearly a thing that was not there before and therefore doesn't belong right. there. Right. You right. know, and, and we've, we've, we've been working through this and it's again, Max, yeah. I love you. And I know you wouldn't describe it that way. But these are my perceptions. And I, I bring that perception as PTSD from, from Jonathan, right? Like I, sure. I, I, I bring my description of how we live in Max's house straight out of how I attempted to live with a man who was so mentally ill around this kind of thing that it was ground zero for anything in his brain, you know? So, so, it's, so, so the, the bathroom, now the bathroom didn't stay that clean, right? Because he made you, empty out. Let's see. I think you, I think I remember hearing that when you finally got into the pantry in the kitchen and opened it, which was days later because it was stacked with things in front of it, that there were, months. I was trying to remember this morning. Months I think there were later, wait, months later, months later. So it was days, weeks, months later, months later. Um, there were um, <laughs> those paper sort of cans of non-dairy creamer and bottles of mayonnaise and bottles of tomato sauce in the multiples, all of which were older than you were. That's exactly right. Right? And And he made you empty them to recycle them. And the tomato sauce ones exploded, of course, when you emptied them because there was all sorts of bacteria in, in them because these were not canning jars they were in. It was, it was all over your clean bathroom. And (laughs) there was that, the the pantry that I got into had uh, layers of, it it seemed like I couldn't put my, I couldn't figure out the smell. I couldn't figure out the texture. It was viscous, thicker than, it was resinous. It was black. It was like molasses, but way more. It was like meconium. Yeah. First baby poop. Yeah. It was seriously like meconium. And I was trying, and I didn't have that reference point at the time, obviously. Yeah. So I, and this was what ultimately drove me from his home, which then we can wrap up because then I want to get to the real stuff, which is you. But I found, uh, I'm looking everywhere for how, okay, so I open, I get into this small, it's a food pantry. Now, some things I feel like I should uh, explain also about this apartment. Number one, it's in one of the most iconic spots in all of New York City, period. It's rent control. Iconic. Like, you can't, it's, it's above Tom's diner for anyone who doesn't know. That's the boom chicka bow wow, the Suzanne Vega, the, the amazing, just, I mean, it's just like something out of a David Hockney painting. So beautiful building, uh, rent controlled and space, multiple bedrooms that I never saw. 
that I never saw in in, in months of being there. But I also, never saw I never saw the uh, the second bedroom until the move out. The second bedroom. If you remember, was, the second bedroom doorway was covered up to here with a land bridge of stuff, and down from here with a shirt rail and shirts hanging, and the the banana boxes holding old newspapers that were literally Lego bricks that were just basically tinder ready to go for like, I mean, it just would have oh, gone they up. Were, it like was, there was, there was, there was um, paper Dropping. dust in the air. Yeah. We were con and if you, because nobody could ever come in and fix anything and he lived there over 20 years, there were slabs of, um, of plaster and this was a plastered ceiling. There were slabs of plaster beginning to come down. So there was plaster dust and paper dust in the air. And um, uh, fly, fly, fly strips in the, in, particularly in the, uh, in the, in the, in the, uh, the hallway. I don't remember if you uncovered the reason for the flies or if I did. There were, I, I think you didn't. I think it was me. It was in the hallway, in the long hallway. There was a box from one time when he was in um, one of the Western provinces of Canada. And there's Canadian breakfast cereal that he liked that you can't get. So he had an entire carton of this Canadian breakfast cereal shipped to the house, never opened it, never ate from it, never remembered that it was there. And all of the flies every year, every season, that 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 were born they liked were born it. in that they ate it <laughs> they, they ate opened it. it so that was now I know when he was there because his Rebbe Shlomo Zalman um, no that's my great grandfather uh, Zalman Shachter Shalomi was the Hillel director at the university there that year right you know how long ago that was like you know we're already talking twenty years ago that was third like thirty years before that. He yeah. was in college yeah. and I met him when he was 40, right? You know, so, so. Um, well, I remember I mean, that the first time I came in there, you guys told me it was the, he said it was the first time since 1989 that there had been more than two people in his That's apartment right. at the same yeah. time. I remember that distinctly that and how nervous and shamed that, that he felt that day. And how heartbreaking that is because I'm like, when I walk, I like just, it's just heartbreaking. Like there's no parties in that apartment. There used to be Friday night dinners and, and groups and, and this and that in, in that apartment. It, it, his is an illness where, first of all, like so many psychoses, it really gets worse when you're in your twenties than it was before. But also when you stop living with anyone else, when you, right. as long as you're living with someone else exactly. contiguously, they maintain boundaries that you can't yeah, they're, cross. They're challenged. They're right. challenging your boundaries on a regular basis. So right. you have to learn how to. You just kind of have more. no choice, right? Like unless, and, and but then when they leave, you just spread out, you know, and that's it, and it's over. And when I, when he moved into the house in in New Jersey, I tried to. Uh, first of all, I bought us a four bedroom, two bath house for two grown ups with a garage and a basement and attic eaves, all of which could be used for storage. And I said, you get these two bedrooms as yours. Then 
we share this bedroom and I get this bedroom as my office and our guest room. And you can have the entire garage, the entire basement and the eaves except the one off my office. But the living room and the dining room and the kitchen need to stay clear. Mm -hmm. Not from day one. From day one, because even just the insanity of trying to get him out of there, which is really like, if we ever go deep into this stuff, I'll tell you about it. But, you know, the movers were sick to death of him. We're not going to, you know, and he had lost all control of what went where and, and what was being packed and what. And anyway, he had, we had shipments to three different storage units that he had already pre-purchased in New Jersey, in different towns in New Jersey. That was for things like the boxes of of newspapers leading back to the 70s. Um, They got their own thing. And we had to write M on the ones that had mouse droppings on them. So that when he opened them to read them, he'd remember to wear gloves, right? So, but even with those three things, so much came into this four bedroom house with all of that storage space that once they plopped it down, it wasn't going anywhere. And that was it. So I bought a house, my house, we, I bought it. You know, I mean, you know, he helped with the down payment, he, you know, he, but, but this was in my name, this was my house. And the night he moved in, which was several months after I moved in and, and decorated it and lived in it in a way that both of us can be there several nights a week. The very night that he moved in, it was the nightmare that the apartment had been. Yeah. And you know, the next morning after the move, he got up before dawn, got in his car and went back to the building and went sorting through the dumpster area and came back with a broken table and a, 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 an old crappy whiteboard and a few other pieces of, of meaningless wood and said, thank God I went there. They were gonna throw these away. Uh, it's, it is, it's just, it's, it's devastating. Devastating. So for me, the, the day, why don't you talk, let's just, let's just do the day you left and, and okay. let's just do so, that because that's really interesting. And then, and then we'll move on. So I went, the, what drove me to the point of actually leaving, and I kept thinking, I can figure this out. I can, I can even, you know, even the fact that I couldn't bring my coffee into his kitchen, which some would question, why would you consume anything while you're doing this kind of work? But it's, you know, it's New York City. I'm like, down, yeah, you know. <laughs> No, but like I couldn't, if it had cream in it, I couldn't put it on a particular counter because of his kosher kitchen. And I just remember being like, explain, explain to me as a, as this somebody is a kosher kitchen. Like, <laughs> like I, well, not even that, just like explain to me how it works and I'll do it your way. And it's just like this, like, yeah, no, there's no, cause I just kept thinking even that, like, there was no the ability to remain for him to remain outside of the situation or just to keep people at arm's length there was no way that i was ever going to be allowed to understand him he wouldn't like and and that's my ego talking no way that i 
that it's understandable to somebody whose brain is not disordered or it's a, it's a different. So, so anyway, I went into that, um, the, in addition, in this iconic building was in, in beyond all these rooms that were boarded up with Lego box, Lego bricks of banana boxes full of mouse dropping newspaper that had literally sealed off rooms. I found that, that there was a food pantry in the kitchen, which to me, like, I, I was just like, oh my God, that's like finding gold in New York. Like you have a whole room here where you can put your food. Like there's, this is, even if you don't want to use it for that, it's like a whole other. And that was where we found the shelves. So I opened this up and this is where the viscous substances, I am trying to figure out what is it. And it was cans of tomato product and pineapple tidbits and fish different types of anchovy fillets starting like any mackerel any type of tuna but like lots of can tinned fish that had all burst in the hot uh in the hot pantry and and they had coagulated to just like create this uniform black resin that was on the shelves so but I looked underneath and the, the bottom side of the shelves are clean enough. So I'm like, all right, I call him and I tell him what I've discovered. And I say, may I, uh, may I go down to the corner store, measure the shelves and just get new boards cut so that I can just get rid of this stuff scrubbed the walls and you'll have basically a brand new pantry by the end of the day. And he said, absolutely not. We have to cl just clean the shelves to the best. So I literally, that was the day that destroyed the bathroom because I am trying to think of all the, how am I supposed to get this stuff off of a sheet of wood? And I wound up finding, a. A flat, the flattest, most sturdiest edge that I could was a spatula, a wooden spatula. And I got it angled just so, and I really was able to kind of like with a couple of rolls of paper towels, scrape this stuff down into balls of goo and throw that away. And then uh, I went to CVS and got some like rubbing alcohol, whatever, scrubbed it down as best I could, got it put back in there. I could not have been prouder with myself that I had just bought shelving space, like five shelves, floor to ceiling, and uh, came back the next day to figure out how to organize that space. And, and he was like somewhat pleased, somewhat disturbed that I had been able to clear this space for him. Like, where did it all go? Like, I'm like, these are bags of the jars of mayonnaise glass jars that looked like celadon celery colored paint that had separated and that's the like that was from before I was born um yeah so I came into the house and and got or came into the apartment and got to where he was and, and he came up to me and he was shaking just livid like apoplectic and I was like, what's going on? And, and he just, he couldn't even speak. 
and he pulls out the spatula and he's like waving it in my dangerously close to my face, like just shaking. What did you do? What did you do? And I was like, I have, I cleaned out your pantry. And he's like, you, what did you do to my spatula? And I'm like, well, I used it to scrape off the, it's like, this is, this spatula is made of real Vermont maple. I'm like, sweet. I have a friend who lives in Vermont. I'll call her and tell her to like run to the freaking Saturday market and send you another one. Like she's <laughs> like, but it was handmade. And I'm like, sure, I can get you another hand. I'll, the, my first response was, it's a spatula. I'll go down to the corner store and get you another one. This was real Vermont maple. I'm like, okay, well, you know what? I used it as it was very handy in cleaning off your shelves so that you could have this space. And it was just so he, we got to such an impasse with that, where the energy was so tight that I was just like, you know what? I'm out. I'm not doing this. I'm sorry. I got to go. Uh, uh, we'll talk later and we'll reschedule. And the next time I was going to work in his space, I was getting physically ill. And another one of my clients called and was like, what are you doing? I need you over here today. And I was like, I have to go do this other job. And he's like, why? <laughs> and I was like, uh, he's like, every time, you know, you know, I, I was as discreet as could be, but just the, the difference, I mean, to be perfectly honest, they're like in their central park West apartment with the, you know, everybody's got their role and I'm putting away their shiny life and He's like, I'm ordering your favorite pizza. Like we're your surrogate parents. You're not allowed to go back into that space. It's clearly toxic for you. And then I had to stop and I will never, I was on 51st and third about to get on the subway there under the Citibank building. And then I just like stopped and I sat on the bench and I called Jonathan and I was like, I'm not coming over and I'm not coming back. And this is why. And when I admitted to him that I had been defeated by his space, he just, broke into the kindest, softest, most loving, most compassionate. Like you, I, you've done so much for me. Like, so all of the, the sweetness that it was evident that he's, you know, got that, that part of him that was so sorry to have done this to me or whatever. And I was like, no, I'm sorry that I thought I could fix you. I'm sorry that I came in and moved all your stuff around. Cause clearly this is like, I just remember telling you, uh, it's like trying to move a, a beach with a teaspoon. Like there's just like, there's too much sand to do any, I'm just shuffling shit around. And, uh, then you and I came and sat on a park bench somewhere where, and had our goodbye, which was just really like, it was, I felt like I was leaving you in this, like, what are you doing? Like that, that also, uh, you know, not to diminish the love between two people, but it was clear that your vibrancy was like, there was just like a, you were trapped at that point. And, uh, you were finding ways that you were very honest with about trying to make space for yourself. And I think that, you know, it wound up meaning that you put even extra pounds on to create a bigger footprint inside I of a space. To, that was... I used to go to work 
one of my colleagues wondered whether Jonathan ever physically touched me, you know, hurt me, which he never ever did. Um, because I would come in with bruises here that looked, the colleague said, like somebody grabbed my wrists. But what it was, was that I would do this to try to widen out the space because I had to sidle everywhere. And if I touched something, he heard it and, and he would, th th this wasn't really to, to widen the space. It was because if I rushed into something, he suggested I should be careful about gaining weight because I was beginning to tumble things, right? So this was like, yeah. and I would, I would bruise myself. I would also leave the house sometime. There would be times when I would leave the house with my bathroom bag, not knowing that yeah. whether I was coming. And there, there was, there were many times when I came home, turned around, went back out, but then came home again. But there was one night when I came home, turned around, went out, did not come back until the next day after work. And he never asked where I was. Like, where did I stay? Was I safe? Anything, nothing. There was no discussion of it whatsoever. Nothing. You know, and he did, I had, we had a therapist, a marriage counselor who said that Jonathan was the the king of marriage saving moves. He, I would be ready to leave and he would, he would take out this other part of himself that I loved right. and he would suddenly be understanding about something, suddenly be able to promise something, some, you know, and, and I would say, okay, you know, and then that happened quite a number of times when people, I was married to him for 12 years, 12 years. And uh, much of that time, it went from, God, I love this guy, to, oh, how are we gonna be happy together? To, how am I gonna be happy living with him? To, can I, ever be happy enough while married to him? And when the answer to that was no, that was when I finally had to go. When I couldn't, I was so so committed. And I, I felt that it was different because I felt that, you know, if he was just an asshole, he's just an asshole and I'm out, right? But it was different because he was if it were an answer or a, a part of the illness. If you look it up in the DSM and one, one of the, I think, I suspect that one of the reasons it moved from anxiety disorder to psychotic disorder is that a very big part of the illness is refusing to absolutely refusing to see yourself as ill yeah. and that thing was a very big part of what it what made it so impossible because I could live separately from him I did often live separately from him and sure. then our home my home would be the place where we were and his home was wherever he was, right? And that, like, that could kind of work. Um, but the amount of um, so two things: one is this absolute denial of of being ill requires a person who lives like he does to have another reason for everything. So everything has to be externalized. 
And I'm the most proximate person, which means I get a lot of that responsibility when it's not mine. So there's a lot of what, what becomes um, gaslighting, mm-hmm. not because he means to gaslight and manipulate, but because by virtue of refusing to see himself as ill, in the closed set of two, I'm the ill one and right. he's the fine one. And his illness right. was so strong that I could get convinced of it, right? The other part of it was that pathological hoarding, as opposed to neurotic, what if I'll need it, hoarding, right. or I lived through the depression, or I lived on a farm where we made 27 uses of everything, you know, which is maybe maladaptive for living in, sure. in an urban or suburban house. A survival you know, base. Right. Right, but the the this this thing, it's really that you cannot, as as you started to to get to before, you cannot throw anything away. You cannot make the choice of no to anything, of of get rid of anything. Any decision a person makes in life is choosing this, and 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 by virtue of choosing this, not choosing this. So. If you can't do it, but life requires it, you must wait until someone does it for you. And then you do this thing where you first of all make clear to yourself and the world and your God that you didn't do it, they did it. You had no choice and you regret it terribly. Yeah, forced into it and this victimhood. Marrying me, the marriage that he would still claim he would go back to in a flash. Because if you're going to hoard, you know, newspapers, of course, you're going to hoard your wife, right? Um, But the, the marriage, the wedding, immediately, it was all my doing, all my pushing, all my responsibility. Right. And maybe he regrets it. Right. Right. So everything, everything. He had a picture he of me. Wouldn't have done it if he weren't of me from it. when I was twenty, which is when we first met. I and remember that not... story. It's so beautiful. I mean, it just had such right. a sparkle. Except, to the, like, except when you realize you. that what it represented was a person who could not see the the me from twenty years earlier and the me from now and merge the passion from them into the me from now. So every time he looked at me, he saw the lack of her, Mm -hmm. right? He actually, here's a time I should have not married him. I was just losing a few pounds to make sure that between the time the the dress arrived from Florida and I put put it on that I didn't gain any weight, right? Like, so I wasn't losing massive amounts of weight. I, I got a dress to fit my body, but my body goes up and down and weight is fluid for me. So I wasn't, I can't exercise. I learned that from a bridesmaid's dress once. I exercised to make sure it fit and my back expanded from the exercise. Yeah, right. gonna, oh, no. <laughs> so it wasn't gonna be exercise. It was just gonna right. be diet and just getting a little right. bit thinner just to make sure that the, the waistline was perfect. Right. So he leaned down during that time and he kissed me and he said, you're moving towards a killer body. And I shouldn't have married him. 
I shouldn't have married her. Right. Right. So we were both naive. So the day you left, I remember before we met that you called me, left a message. I couldn't call you back. I, I, I was calling you back saying to you, I promise you don't have to go back, but you have to call me because I have to know that you're all right. Yes. So you don't have to come back. We don't even have to talk about it, but you do have to call me. And, and, and so then we, you know, we, we met up and I, I just, you know, that the stories of those things have stayed with me in this, this, um, and you should know, so did the uh, tomatoes splashes. They stayed with me for the rest of the time we were there. But the, <laughs> yes. But I, you know, the, the thing from that day was, I think that might've been the day that I also truly, truly understood that this was not just a crashing in of circumstances. This wasn't that his parents died, that he, that he was neurotic, that he was alone, that he was whatever, that this was truly, truly deep illness. And that I too, I don't, you know, people, people say people marry a person who's sick in order to fix them. And I don't think that that was true of me. I think that what was true of me was that I had too much confidence in my own resilience. And that's actually, you know, for the audience, I live with fibromyalgia, which was a, fi which was a way of my body um, going on strike and saying, fuck you, you expect me to, to rebound from everything you throw at me. I've never really been able to do it. I've always dragged along after you. From now on, I get the veto power, you don't. Meaning I, my body versus you, my brain, right? You know. And this division between my brain and my body is, has long been something. And with Jonathan, it really was my, my brain being certain that I could survive it, that I could recover from it, that I could make do with it. Once I realized it was as bad as it was, because at first I, I didn't, I believed him because he was an honest person. So I believed the, the externalization. I didn't, I didn't know that in this universe, he can't, he can't be honest. But to him, it sounds just, just as honest. So to him, it's you know, it's normal, 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 crazy, 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 fucking batshit, crazy, 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 normal, 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 normal. To him, it all feels exactly the same. So right. when I first met him, it all sounded exactly the same. And since I believed the other normal parts were honest, I believed that this was honest. But when I did know, I still thought that it wasn't going to harm me, that I could find ways for it not to harm me. And that was the day I still went on to believe that, but that was the day it began to turn because it was so awful that the only other person who experienced it in, in 20 plus years literally ran screaming and crying from the city, <laughs> from the continent. <laughs> well, I mean, Perhaps that that sounds so dramatic. I'm like that was like the the spark for my cannon blast. That was like I've got to figure out how I can show up and not try to make it about me. 
Right, right. You know, and it was, it wasn't about you. It wasn't about me. This was so, it wasn't even about Jonathan. This was so deep inside of him that this wasn't about anything because it was like saying an amoeba is about something. It didn't have enough intelligence behind it to be about something. This is simple illness. This is, this is mechanisms firing wrong and then creating thoughts to, to substantiate itself. This didn't emerge from thought. This, this, this is pre-mental. Like it's, it's like a cancer. It's just something that's going to keep eating, eating, eating and not right. it, it just, yeah. 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 I, that has been something that throughout the years since I've always been fascinated by just addictive behaviors and different obsessive behaviors that show up and, and just watching how, different they are uh and the ones that like the the situations that require intervention that typically pan out poorly are hoarding disorders and eating disorders and that just absolutely fascinates me and it's like the the this the it's just the relationship in the environment like what is that what is disordered? What is that? And, and I, it's, it's, I don't understand it. But it's also obviously. the constant, you can't, you can't separate yourself from it. You know, no, but I, when I you're have somebody... mild eating disorders, right? I, I, I have a, I have a neurotic relationship to food, um, sure. but, um, you know, if you're, not, and I, and I have addicts in my family, real real addicts of real um, substances that, that have hurt them. Um, you can keep alcohol out of your house. Mm-hmm. You can't keep food out of your house. No. You can, you can, um, you can stay forever out of gambling uh, houses, but you can't not pass newspaper bins right. if you live in the city, right? Like in these two things that you mentioned, there is no past. It is, it is a constant re-challenging of everything. Every time I go into a supermarket, uh, if I'm away from the person who keeps some boundaries on me and helps me see that, I buy shit, right? You know, and then I might put it in another bag and give it away, but I still buy it, you know? <laughs> right. You know, and, 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 and he, there. you know, it, it's just not. Right. It's it, the there is always there. And, you know, in our relationship, the, the, the very last marriage counselor that we had, who was up in Toronto when I was working there, said she, she gave it. She was trying to she was trying to explain to him that he had mental illness and that an unacknowledged mental illness in a marriage is like an unacknowledged lover in a marriage. You can't successfully do uh, marriage counseling if you can't acknowledge the factors that are interfering with the happiness of the marriage, right? But he of course could not see that. And she did a real bonehead. She, she, she gave up and she turned to me and said, you too, you have PTSD. So she basically gave up on him and decided to focus on me having mental illness. And at first I, you know, I like, You know, and I said, oh, I guess I do have PTSD. Look at that, right? But then I, but then I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
the very first word of PTSD is post. Where's yeah. the post? Uh-huh. This is still happening. And he yeah. said to, to her, she lives in this beautiful place in Toronto. She hasn't been in the house. She doesn't live in a hoarded place. So it is post. And I said, when we come into my house with leftovers from the restaurant that are on a white plate and in a very thin plastic bag, and the place you choose to rest it, presumably only while you're taking your coat off, is the middle of my white couch. And you cannot understand why I think that's a bad idea and why I don't trust that you will actually pick it up and remove it from the white couch. Then it's not post. This is still happening. It happens constantly. And, you know, <laughs> so it was... But the, the, that, that was a tendency, I had the same tendency uh, when we were living in the house in New Jersey. When I gave up trying to convince him that he was ill, I started to go to OA because I was ill, right? Which may or may not be true, but it's no substitute for the damage his illness caused me. Right, right? So, so that's that was- what I, like, so even, if that's what is so fascinating too, is that this is not a life that you under any other circumstances would choose for yourself and like your family programming has meant that like oh yeah I can handle a little bit here and there like that probably set your bar for your perceived resiliency really high you know like oh I that's right and my and my tolerance of those particular flaws very low very high also my tolerance very high right so when you when did you get your fibromyalgia diagnosis because Toronto. this is what I think, I mean, this is where I'm kind of going yeah. with this. It's like, okay, let, me, that... let me put some tea in the cup. Hang on a second. Yeah. Yes. Hey, I also said I would tell you what this podcast is not going to be. This podcast is not going to be a place where we judge people for what they hang on to or how long it takes them to let go of the things that they may be dragging around with them from spot to spot in their experience. This podcast is not going to be fancy. This podcast is not going to be very well edited. This podcast is going to be messy magic. Me throwing it out there and sharing with you the stuff that I just can't keep to myself anymore. So thanks so much. We're all ultimately just walking each other home. So thanks for joining me on this journey. And if you're enjoying, please follow along. Please leave a review. Find me wherever you're getting your podcasts. And take care. And thank you so much for being here. Anything else you need to know, you'll probably find in the show notes. If not, drop me a message and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Have a great day, you guys. Thanks for joining me. What's up with your stuff?